Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. I had a mohawk for probably two to three years of my life. I had a studded belt and big Doc Martens, which I had to get rid of when I became a vegan punk rocker. And yeah. I was super into the identity and the expressions of identity and the paraphernalia. This is Forrest McBride. Do you know what drew you to that scene? Well, I think I always felt different. My stepmother always told me I was like, her way of putting it was, you're a very deep thinker, Forrest, which I've interpreted, <laughs> interpreted a lot of different ways in the ensuing years. I was just always interested in different things. You know, punk rock seemed like it was a place for people who felt different. Forrest has long since traded in his Doc Martens for ski boots. That punk ethos, though, that anti-corporate, no-frills, stripped-down rawness, that has stayed even if the clothing and the hairstyles shifted. This past spring, Forrest and his good friend and fellow ski guide Trevor Kostinich embarked on an expedition in the mountains that I would argue was pretty damn punk rock. Here's what I mean. In the world of expeditions, and when I say expeditions, I'm talking about big, burly trips that push the limits of human endurance and human-powered travel, there's a template for doing it. There's a trajectory for the legendary expedition that typically flows like this. Step one, come up with an absolutely audacious idea and believe it is possible. Step two, find a sponsor or sponsors that will help front that bill. Audacious ideas are typically expensive, for real. Like, a lot of times they cost 
tens and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's key to explain what the sponsor will get out of it. That's called ROI, return on investment. And typically for a company that supports an expedition, this ROI comes in the forms of imagery, films, and social media posts. Step three, fly to the other side of the world. Think the Himalaya, Karakoram, Baffin, Antarctica. Step four, struggle through a lot of miserable moments that are also awesome. Pull some camera-worthy cowboy stunts to extricate yourself from a handful of accidents or close call in pursuit of an objective that's never been done before. Bonus points if you lose a decent percent of your body weight or don't sleep 48 hours or more in one push. By the end, you should want to go home. Step four, produce a film or go on a media tour or speaking tour to fulfill your commitment to your sponsor. And with any luck, you will secure the funds for your next adventure. This process is what many of us refer to as living the dream. Here's what Forrest has to say about that. One of the phrases that I find really troubling in our subculture of mountain life is this phrase, uh, living the dream. The notion that there's one dream that we're all after and agreed upon ways in, in which you can verify that you are indeed living that dream drives me crazy. Everyone's dream is a little bit different. And if there is a dream that we all lust after, then we're all just trying to do what's in the climbing magazines and that's pushed by the media. So yeah, it sort of feels like an act of rebellion. Not rebellion in like a more meaningful political and social sense, but culturally. Like, this is what we think is cool. We're going to do what we think is cool. Sort of the punk rock version of ski touring? I would love that. I don't own punk rock or get to define what it is. But insofar as punk rock formed me and influenced a lot of my values that I still try to live today, uh, I, I would like to be a punk rock ski mountaineer. That sounds aspirational to me. And like an aspiration I can get behind. Yet the root of what you're looking for is raw adventure. There's a lot of extraneous steps in that standard expedition process. What happens when you strip it down, make it raw, emotional, anti-corporate, punk rock? Today, our producer Jen Altschul brings you the story of Forrest and Trevor's month-long ski traverse of the North Cascades, a trip that breaks all the rules of an epic mountain expedition in the best way possible. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. The North Cascades, the American Alps. They run some 140 miles from Snoqualmie Pass, an hour east of Seattle, north to the Canadian border. The Cascades have characteristics of a lot of the great ranges of the world with a mix of rock and ice. And uh, more than any other range in the contiguous U.S., we have glaciers here. And that just really adds a aesthetic dimension to the mountains. This is Lowell Skoog the godfather of ski mountaineering in the Pacific Northwest. It's great to hear about an adventure like this because it 
can inspire us to realize that you don't have to buy a plane ticket for an adventure. You know, this was a terrific adventure on a par with a big climb in the Himalaya or maybe a trip to the Andes or something like that. And yet they didn't have to get a passport and they did this thing close to home. And as somebody who's, I've climbed in different places and done mountain trips throughout the world, I still, the trips that really resonate for me that I'll always remember maybe the most are the local ones. On a sunny day, when I'm driving across one of the bridges over Lake Washington, I can look from Mount Rainier up to Mount Baker and go, yeah, I know those mountains. And anyone who's come up with similar adventures has that. The route Forrest and Trevor chose would trace a line along the crest of the North Cascades that Lowell had drawn in sections over 25 years. Forrest and Trevor are both extremely experienced and talented skiers and alpinists. Forrest holds a full IFMGA guide certification. The highest level of credential you can attain is a professional mountain guide. There are only about 100 in the entire United States. It's a certification that still means a great deal, even in the inner circles of the ski and climbing world. Trevor is an aspiring AMGA certified ski guide with a lot of years of experience. It's the highest credential in ski mountaineering in the U.S. With a month off, these two could have gone anywhere and established a first descent or descent in some notorious mountain range. A lot of friends asked, it's like, wow, you're taking a month off. Yeah, why don't you go do some remote pioneered trip? Because the truth is, I don't think there was really much pioneering on this trip except for doing it all in one one push. This is Trevor Kostinich. But it just comes back to the love for the Cascades. This is where I have spent most all of my time and where I expect to spend most of my life. And I, I love it. I think that they're an amazingly wild range. And um, I have been fortunate to ski in the northern Himalaya. I spent a season in northern India and have been in Nepal. And they're way bigger mountains, but it's funny. I feel like they're actually a little less wild just because of the amount of village development. It almost doesn't have as pristine a feel as our Cascades do. It was as simple as just really deciding to connect to our deep love for the North Cascades and embrace the idea that these mountains are world-class. Trevor grew up in a suburb of Seattle and fell in love with the Cascades early. Started ski school at the age of 13. Took the old bus up to Snoqualmie Pass. He graduated from college with a degree in civil engineering, worked for a couple of seasons as a ski instructor at Alpenthal, one of the ski areas at Snoqualmie Pass, then used his degree to get involved with land use planning and development for the ski area. So I lived, worked, and played on Snoqualmie Pass for about 12 years. And the Cascades just have so much opportunity to continue to go to new new places. Forrest grew up in Oregon, Eugene, then Portland. But his infatuation with the North Cascades began early, too. I think I saw my first picture of the North Cascades, like at my high school library. And I could not believe, couldn't believe, that this place was only six hours north on I-5. And... I knew that what I wanted was in the North Cascades. I don't really know how I knew that, but I knew it. That's where I wanted to spend most of my free time since then. Forrest and Trevor both wound up with jobs for pro-guiding service. 
an operation run by the Northwest's legendary Martin Vulcan that offers classes and guided trips in mountains around the world, but primarily in the North Cascades. But the two actually met because they moved in next door to one another in the town of North Bend. Eventually, they stopped just talking about mountains together and started going into the mountains together. And when we did start doing a few trips together, we realized that there was something in our decision-making together and our ability to openly discuss the choices at hand that was really healthy and more than the sum of its parts. Like lead us towards achieving what we wanted to achieve, but also help ensure our safety, which is a difficult balance to strike when you're trying to do ambitious things together in the mountains. Forrest is a, a way stronger alpinist and I have a little, a deeper ski background. So we complement each other pretty well on big ski mountaineering trips and more importantly, enjoy spending time <laughs> with each other. Trevor is a deeply kind person and I've always been drawn to deeply kind people. I feel an increased sense of peace and well-being and connection to my values when I spend time with him. Kind of what you want in a skiing partnership. was never ever even on the table we wanted to spend a month in the north cascades and we wanted to have a plan that would let us do that even if we were met with days of rain which if you've ever spent time in this region in the spring months then you know that may can serve up persistent day after day rains warm temps mushy snow so we were curious what it would be like to set out with an intention to persist, even if conditions were bad. But I think just as important an inspiration was the feeling on day like four or five of a week-long trip where you're starting to enter a different space. It's hard to describe, but it's sort of this transition you start to feel happening. And we had both only ever started to feel that and then finished a trip. We were really curious what it would be like to just stay out there. And Forrest and Trevor made a very conscious decision not to go after sponsorships or media coverage. There's no free lunch out there. So if there is a sponsorship, sometimes there's an angle that they might want you to take or there's a story they'd like you to share. And we just didn't want to go into it with any of those responsibilities. wasn't something that we called each other this February and said, hey, you want to go for a big ski tour in May? There was definitely years of planning. They started planning and searching for a window in 2014. They blocked out a month on the calendar in the spring of 2015, then 2016. But in order to make this project happen, they needed a deep, stable snowpack that would linger into the late spring. The Cascades do receive a ton of snow, but they're low enough in elevation that it would take a special season to make the right conditions. The winter of 2017 was that season. The snow just did not stop. And on April 29th, Forrest met Trevor at his home in North Bend. And then we just hopped in the car, and it was the usual 30-minute drive up to Snoqualmie Pass. And we just skied up the most familiar trailhead in the world to start the longest, wildest, most unfamiliar trip of our lives. 
Forrest and Trevor set out on an itinerary that Martin Vulcan has deemed the Snoqualmie Haute Route, in reference to the famous detour that connects Chamonix and Zermatt. And uh, it's not really meant to be tongue-in-cheek when applied to Snoqualmie backcountry. It is phenomenal ski touring. Even with the advantage of spectacular and familiar terrain, the trip started off grim in a decidedly unglamorous way. Warm weather meant wet, heavy snow, and hard trail breaking. And Forrest Skins did not want to stay glued to the bottom of his skis. But we made them work, and we carried on. We had a really good second day. It's just north of Snoqualmie Pass. Is this breathtaking, jaw-dropping mountain relief. These peaks, the Limas, Chimney Rock, Overcoat Peak, that kind of tower above the middle fork of the Snoqualmie River. And... It's exquisite, and we had good conditions and good skiing that really stoked our enthusiasm and made us feel like, okay, maybe maybe we're going to get somewhere. In those first few days, Forrest and Trevor also had a real moment to reaffirm their commitment to the project. Forrest had just started dating someone a few weeks before they left, and it seemed to be going well. So we're out, and Forrest is, like, texting her whenever he can, and I'm kind of like, uh... You know, you're not going to be able to text that much pretty soon. Like, how is this going to work? And selfishly, I wanted to do this trip pretty bad, but I'm, I'm also good friends with Forrest. So I'm like, hey, how serious is this relationship? You know, do you really want to do this trip right now? Because who knows what will happen? And the mountains aren't going anywhere. And this person might. That's another way to phrase what drew me to Trevor and made me want to do this trip with him is like his orientation is our humanity first before it is to ambition or achievement. I felt deeply touched and it was also not a difficult moment for me. I was very clear that this trip was happening. And this trip and trips like it for me are the deepest expression of who I am and they're the best way for me to connect to who I am and try to grow. The snow stayed cold while Forrest and Trevor skied their way up over Mount Daniel and Mount Hinman. Then we hit some pretty serious rain and wetness on our way to Stevens Pass. Essentially, you are forced to follow the Pacific Crest Trail for a handful of miles, which doesn't feel very grand or inspiring compared with the high mountain terrain we've been in. But it was also a different kind of challenge that we were really excited to sink our teeth into, which was, what happens when we get wet? Can we keep moving? It's just sort of this mystery, because most people in the Cascades, it's like if you get super wet ski touring, it's like, let's go home. This is bogus. Like, the ski liners are wet. They don't dry out very quick. My skins are wet. They don't stick anymore. My layers are wet. I'm cold. Our entire living space is wet. This is bullshit. We're going home. And we started learning to deal with it. A friend of Trevor's met Trevor and Forrest at Stevens Pass with a resupply and pizza and ice cream. Then, Trevor and Forrest crossed the highway and skinned north. On the southern flank of Glacier Peak, they met up with Trevor's friend, Matt Henry, and the three of them continued around the east side of the mountain. We got soaked. We got to our camp, and we could all pour water out of our boot liners. Every layer was wet. We all had down sleeping bags. And it was 10 a.m. when we piled into the tent. And we didn't actually leave until 8 a.m. the next morning, so I guess we were in there for about 22 hours, drying shit out. Super humbling. But once again, 
in what would become a theme for the trip, their willingness to deal with the wet for a day paid off. The next day, the trio was joined by photographer Scott Rinkenberger, and the rain turned to snow, and they moved into terrain neither of them had ever explored. Skiing among larch trees who had yet to start showing their new needles, exploring places I'd long dreamed of and read about but never been. The four skiers traversed the flanks of Sitting Bull Mountain and Plummer Mountain to Bannock Lakes, then regained the crest at Sinister Peak, the southern end of the Ptarmigan Traverse. The southern end of the Ptarmigan Traverse is this beautiful massif crowned by Dome Peak, but including Sinister Peak, Gunsight Peak, and all of those kind of ring this big, big glacial cirque containing the Chickaman Glacier, which is one of the biggest glaciers in the state. They gained the Chickaman Glacier in a whiteout. It was cold. It was dumping snow. And we had some ideas about what we wanted to do in that area. And they weren't really compatible with whiteout and dumping snow. So we ended up spending an entire day just kicking it in our tents. And maybe more than anything, this was the key to Forrest and Trevor's success. They had built enough time into their trip to rest, to wait out weather, to dry out, to recover. Normally you go out, whether it's just three days or even like six or seven, you usually know you have pretty good weather and you kind of give it. We didn't feel that our bodies could sustain that sort of output. Our vision was on the entirety of the trip. That expedition mentality, I mean, it just really saved us for energy. It saved our feet. We totally thought we'd have horrible trench foot or blisters and never had feet issues, which surprised us. It was a nice way to travel. We're kind of like, we should do this more often. Just like set the expectation down 25%. And it's like, wow, this is like, it's fun. (laughs) After two nights in the same spot on the Chickaman Glacier, the four skiers unzipped their tents. Stuck our head up and it was like, stars and totally clear and we had received at our camp almost 10 inches of new snow and now it's like cold and gonna go clear so we're all of a sudden freaking out (laughs) it's like oh my god not only are we gonna get to do this it's probably pretty darn good the team made their way quickly to the top of the north peak of dome and we skied the line that i'd been dreaming of which was fall line to the valley bottom down the chickaman glacier so through all of its convolutions and its ice falls and it was lower. It was like a dream. The turns on the chicken, and it was like, are you kidding me? This is May? I mean, it felt like you were heli skiing in Canada or Alaska. From the bottom of the chicken, the team finished out the rest of the Ptarmigan Traverse to Cascade Pass. There, Matt and Scott would ski out to Cascade River Road, and Trevor's wife Emily would skin in to deliver their next resupply, with none other than Lowell Skoog. So there's this moment when we're at Cascade Pass, brewing up a coffee, a look over, me and Emily are having this conversation, Forrest and Lowell are talking mountains, and I'm just like, whoa, how am I so spoiled to have this moment and this crazy, wild, special part of the Cascade range with people for me. And I actually like got pretty emotional for quite a while after Emily had skied away. So we stayed on Cascade Pass another day. I was emotionally hungover. And that's like really easy for me to communicate 
to Forrest and really easy for him to understand and respect. I think it speaks a lot to me in Forrest's just decision-making and partnership. I could kind of like clear my head and get ready to be thinking Big Mountain decision-making again. Under clear skies, Forrest and Trevor climbed back into familiar terrain on the Forbidden Tour. Probably the most exceptional, accessible ski tour in the lower 48, connecting these massive glacial circs around Forbidden Peak. From Forbidden, they followed the isolation traverse to Highway 20 for another resupply. And I discovered that I was the victim of a plot involving a conspiracy through which Trevor and Emily managed to bring my girlfriend to meet me at Highway 20, which I wasn't expecting. And that was overwhelming and beautiful. And I ate a lot of pizza. I drank some beers. A friend of ours, he left us beers like at the trailhead for Pyramid Lake with a postcard and a very gruff message for people other than Trevor and Forrest to leave these goddamn beers alone. And I think at that point, we sort of had come to grasp that that was part of this trip. We were just going to have these intervals of wilderness punctuated by really profound contact with our community and our families. From Highway 20, Forrest and Trevor skinned toward the Picket Range, perhaps the most rugged, wild, and unexplored subrange of the North Cascades, guarded by a notoriously brutal, brushy approach and bad weather. They're super steep, very rugged, by some reckoning the most remote spot in the lower 48 is somewhere there in the Picket Range on the shoulder of Mount Fury. When they pitched their tent that night, Forrest realized he had made an unfortunate oversight. I managed to leave that resupply without a sleeping pad. So I finished the trip sleeping on a nest of rice noodles, garbage, and spare clothing. This, this is another key to the smoothness of the expedition. Forrest and Trevor endured plenty of unpleasant trees in their month in the mountains. Just when they think back on the trip, those seem to fade into the background. When they do talk about them, it's with a lighthearted irreverence. Trevor and I decided that one of the best sleeping pads you could have is to not have a sleeping pad because you're so tired from the terrible sleep you've been getting that you just sleep really well and you don't need a pad. We had some other laughable moments where it's like, wow, we just got our asses handed to us. Like looking around the town, we had cordelette at the top where we're like hanging wet stuff, but it's 100% relative humidity in this tent because it's still raining outside, we're soaked. And, you know, you're, like, trying to truly warm up because you're pretty cold, and it's just, like, a fun way to react to the challenge of trying to stay warm, but to laugh, and hopefully it warmed us up. We laughed so much. I have this habit of make up ridiculous songs about whatever's happening around me, but I found that if you do that enough and you do it with your only goal of being fun, you can get almost anyone to start doing it. And Trevor, I had never heard him sing once in my life. And then partway through the trip, he just started singing songs about bags. I don't think I could sing it for you, but if you've ever sung a silly song in the mountains, then maybe you know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about. I wish that you could recreate that song for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm singing about all the bags that I have. I wish that I had a few more. This one is wet and this one has holes. <laughs> I don't think I can stay dry no more. Bags of bags of bags of bags of bags of bags. Do you have any moments bags, that you where you're like, this was a dumb idea and I'd like to go home? <laughs> and on and on and on. Yeah, absolutely not. No. We enjoyed ourselves the whole way. There are moments of uncertainty and doubt and, and strong emotion, but we had such a good time. It really did feel like a vacation and we really did feel pretty spoiled. So we headed into the picket range pretty like outrageous place that it's hard to get a good weather window and conditions window to go ski touring in this place and we just showed up there 23 days north of Snoqualmie Pass to find a week of high pressure and perfect conditions so again we were feeling a little self-conscious and a little bit spoiled but we decided we would take it their time in the pickets was marked by good weather and steady movement spent a night in ancient cottonwoods at the bottom of Macmillan Cirque. From the summit of Mount Fury, they found themselves overwhelmed by the endless sea of peaks to climb and lines to ski. They rigged a creative rappel into Luna Cirque. They skied the North Ridge off the summit of Whatcom Peak. Then, in the valley north of Whatcom, they discovered that their next free supply had fallen through. And we were contemplating the end of our trip but debated it for hours and finally got in touch with our community. And Emily brought a bag of food to Martin Vulcan's house in North Bend at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night. Martin got up at probably 3.30 a.m., drove north to the Hannigan Pass Trailhead. So probably four hours of driving, schlepped this food in over Hannigan Pass, probably a good six hour round trip hike for him, maybe less, he's very strong. And Trevor hiked to meet him and get this food. And again, we just felt very spoiled. We felt overwhelmed by the support of our community. The last five days of the trip offered a mixed bag, or a number of bags of bags of bags with small holes in some of them, if you will. North of the pickets, the Cascade Crest goes through the Readout Group and Bear Mountain, then ends in a lonely cirque, just west of Ross Lake and south of the Canadian border. We had never been north of Whatcom Pass, either of us, and we were really excited about it. We followed a pair of Wolverine tracks out of Whatcom Pass, and we had terrible weather. We couldn't see Readout for most of the time. We skied past the north face of Bear Mountain and barely caught a glimpse of it. No pun intended. The weather cleared by the time they made it to the final cirque, and Forrest and Trevor picked their way up to a notch in a ridge through which they hoped they could tag Canada. And we found this house-sized cornice. And, like, you could pitch a couple of good-sized tents in the hollow under this cornice. On the professional side of the industry, we like to, like, near-miss is a big topic right now, and we're trying to share near-misses more. So the more we're talking about what we're going to do the next couple hours is, like, it's well above freezing the temperature. Stuff's dripping. This will probably go okay. 
but we will use this as a near miss. Like assuming it goes the way we hope it does, the cornice doesn't fail. <laughs> and we can climb back up this bottleneck, rocky, snowy chute under this cornice and then get back out of here. We're going to use this as a near miss. So why in the hell are we doing this? And we were looking right down on these sunlit hillocks marking the Canadian border and looking down on them. It was just sort of like, oh, it's just another cirque like the hundreds that we've skied through in the past month. And we just talked about what the value was and touching the border. And, and we realized that that just didn't make sense. This might be the most punk rock moment of the whole expedition. For another party, not physically touching Canada would have meant the trip was a failure. Forrest and Trevor didn't look at it that way because they had written their own terms for what defined success. And so we, we turned around and skied back to our camp. And the next day we hiked out Silver Creek, bushwhacked down and out another wild valley to Ross Lake. Caught the water taxi in the morning. The month was just way more impactful in a positive way, being outside in a wild place than I expected. I always kind of thought after you're out for a week, it's like you're just out there, but it does have deeper and deeper impacts. It did on me in a very positive way. When it comes to spending time with nature, whether that's wild nature or fairly subdued nature in your city park, more is better. The difference between zero and some is probably the most important difference, but there is a difference, I learned, between six days and 10 days. And if you have the wherewithal to offer yourself that or offer that to your partner or your friends or your family, you won't be disappointed. How do you feel like you've changed or look at things differently as a result of that trip? Like, how are you different than you were when you left for that trip? I think the biggest thing was really encouraging and supporting people to do what they love. You know, my favorite thing to do is ski touring. When I started to talk about this, it was very clear how much support and encouragement I got. The trip couldn't have happened with all the support we had from food resupplies and logistics and but it's really made me like talk to friends, family, like, hey, it can be knitting, it can be art, it can be climbing mountains, but like, what is it you love to do? And are you doing a lot of it right now? And if not, why not? And you need to be doing more of it because that's just what makes us happiest. So the bigger takeaway for me is really supporting and encouraging people around me to do more of what they love. You don't have to break the bank to do this. Time ultimately is wealth in this life. And uh, you don't have to go far to get deep in the wilderness or spend a lot of money you don't have. Mountains are not better just because they cost more money to get to or because their elevation is higher or even because people haven't climbed them yet. No disrespect to those who pursue adventure in the so-called greater ranges of the world. I would just love to encourage individuals to ask themselves what a greater range is and what your greater ranges are. 
Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Need another layer? Check out the redesigned Micropuff, Patagonia's lightest, most packable insulated jacket ever. Made from ultralight synthetic insulation, it stays warm when it's wet, but it's about the same weight as a down jacket. Find it at patagonia.com. It's pretty rad. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Not snowing where you are either? Well, maybe it's time to go mountain biking. Visit Kuat's beautiful new website at kuatracks.com and find the perfect rack to transport your bike from your home to your trailhead in style. And support for the show also comes from Vossen Brewing, who is on a mission to be one of the most sustainable breweries in the world. Vossen participates in 1% for the Planet, which we're also members of, and manages wastewater disposable responsibly, uses high-efficiency brewing equipment and heat exchangers, and gives their spent grain to local cattle farms. Learn more at vossenbrewing.com. And you, our listeners, you guys also keep us thriving. To pledge your support for the show, visit our website and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks to everyone who has contributed already. Huge congratulations to Forrest and Trevor for their adventure. Thank you for sharing your story with us, guys. Music today from Zombie Dandies, Little Glass Men, Fog Lake, and Vienna Ditto. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Kodos composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Alchel and me, Fitzcahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Sky